Welcome to the Sale Street Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. And for more information about our church, visit salestreet.org. Amen. Good morning. Happy first week of Advent. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And when you get there, you'll see that we're nearing the end of our series in the book of Ephesians. And today we'll look at verses 5 through 9. Next week we'll go through the familiar armor of God passage in verses 10 through 20. And then in two weeks, the series in Ephesians by seeing how things ended up for the church at Ephesus by taking a look at Revelation chapter 2. And that'll put us just in time to have a couple weeks to focus on Christmas. Well, today we that theologians refer to as household codes. If you remember in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul instructs those in the church to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he gives them examples about what that looks like. And so he first starts with wives and husbands, and then he addresses children and parents. And in doing so, he equates value among everyone everyone in the church, but he also clarifies that there are distinct roles in the household, which would have been shockingly progressive at the time. And now in this passage we're in today, he addresses another aspect of the households, and he says what I'm sure they would have never expected. And so if you would follow with me as I read, again, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, here Paul says this. He says, bondservants, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he'll receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Let's take a moment to pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us your insight into this passage, and we pray that you would give us the strength and the faith to obey our Lord Jesus Christ in all things. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've been around here a while, you've probably noticed that here at Sale Street, we like to preach the books of the Bible. Uh, we're here at the end of Ephesians, and we just finished before that the book of Jonah, and then before that it was with James and Acts and so on. We are committed to going line by line and verse by verse through books of the Bible because we think it's the best way to teach and preach and for a number of reasons, but One of those reasons is it forces us to address the passages that we might be tempted to not address, like our passage today. And so if I'm doing the choosing, I'm going to go with verses like Ephesians 1-3, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Or I'm going verses like uh, Philippians 4-13, I can do all things 
through Christ who gives me strength, or the ultimate coffee cup verse. I literally have gotten this as a coffee cup. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, right? Those verses preach. And so if I'm doing the choosing, I'm going to choose verses like that and, of course, have to ignore all the verses around them. But God says for us to be molded and matured into the fullness of Christ, we need the whole counsel of God. Even the passages that require us to overcome some challenges, to understand them and apply them. And so here's kind of what I mean. Last week, I got the opportunity to lead the band's Bible study before the service. They do a a quick Bible study beforehand. and, And it just so happened that they had been walking through the book of Ephesians before we began to preach through it. And and we're just about in, in line on pace, but last week they were on this passage. And so after we read the passage, my first question was, Okay, what is it about this passage that for us in our culture is kind of uh, eyebrow-raising, so to speak? And so, of course, the answer was, it's this talk about bondservants and masters, or the more direct translation is slaves and masters. I mean, we get one word in, and we immediately face some challenges with this passage. First, for us, We know the evils of race-based chattel slavery that existed in this part of the world for hundreds of years. And so we automatically and understandably kind of recoil whenever we hear these words, slaves and masters. But the other challenge is that these verses have been used to to try to, um, they've been used in a couple of ways. And so in, in one instance, there are people who've tried to use these try to justify the, the evils and the sin of slavery. They just completely ignore the context of the passage and ignore the, the circumstance and the purpose and Paul's other writings and the gospel in general, and somehow all they saw was slaves obey your earthly masters. But keep in mind, taking verses out of context and twisting them, that is a tactic of Satan himself. And so let this be a word of warning to us. Sin and greed can be like blinders to us when we try to read the Word of God. It's going to blind us from really understanding what the Scripture is saying. It's going to blind us from seeing God's heart for us through His Word. This passage has also been used by those who oppose Christianity. Again, trying to point out here that what Paul is doing is supporting or approving slavery. They're trying to, trying to label the Bible as antiquated and immoral. And so while normally I would prefer to just jump right into the text and walk through it, I think for us this morning, in an attempt to overcome some of the challenges that this text gives us, in order for us to connect with the heart of God for us in this passage, I think we first need to start and consider some context here, both historically and biblically. And then from there, although the instructions don't directly apply to us as they would to slaves and masters we can learn from the principles of the instruction and then apply that to our lives and then let me also say as a word of encouragement if you're somebody here this morning and you're more of a task oriented person and you're like look let's get straight to the application you're like look I, I trust you on all the explanation just tell me what to do well maybe then add this to your list of application Add learning the scriptures in such a way that you could then teach them to someone else. Remember, we should be actively trying to uh, get into discipling relationships. We need to be actively teaching one another 
the scriptures. And when that happens, when you get those opportunities, it's not like somebody who is new to the Bible is going to be asking the easy stuff, right? It's not going to be, oh, Jesus loves me, tell me more about this. It's going to be at times the hard stuff. It's going to be at times them asking, hey, what's up with Paul talking about slavery here in Ephesians chapter 6? And so I think if we can approach these times like that, we can approach sermons and Bible studies like that where we're coming in and we're trying to listen and learn in such a way where then we could then communicate it to somebody else. That's going to change the way we engage in this time. It's going to change the way we listen and the way that we learn, and it's going to ultimately change the way that we live. And so again, try to listen in such a way that you could then teach it to somebody else. And so here's the the larger context, as I mentioned. And so that word bondservant in this passage, it also can be translated as slave. And I think the ESV, I think it translates as bondservant so that it would avoid this assumption that we might have that slavery in the Roman Empire was exactly like slavery in America. There were similarities to this, but slavery in the Roman Empire It wasn't race-based, and it wasn't lifelong. There wasn't a slave class, and slavery was much more integrated into everyday life. It was extremely widespread. They estimate that it could have been up to 60 million slaves were in the Roman Empire at this time. And depending on the sources that you look at, up to maybe between 35 to 50 percent of the population of Ephesus could have been slaves. And these slaves could have been slaves by birth. Some were slaves because they were abandoned as children and then got brought into slavery. Some were prisoners of war and some were slaves in a way kind of voluntarily because it was a way for them to pay off debt. If you were an entrepreneur and you borrowed money and for whatever reason the business went under, well then you could sell yourself and you could sell your family into slavery to pay off that debt. And so that means that slaves could have worked all types of different jobs, not just hard labor. A lot of times these slaves would be running their their master's family business, and many of these slaves had specialized skills. Sometimes these slaves were more educated than their masters, and often they lived separately from their masters. Slaves in the Roman Empire, they could own property, and they could even own other slaves, and there usually wasn't a real obvious way to distinguish a slave from a free person. And these slaves were allowed to save up money to eventually buy their own freedom, a lot of which buy, bought their freedom by the age of 30. And slavery was a way that you could become a Roman citizen. And so slavery in the Roman Empire, it was in some ways more humane than what existed in the United States. But I'm not making these points to make light of it. I am definitely not trying to portray this in any kind of positive way. Overall, it it definitely wasn't a positive thing. They were still owned. They were uh, lacking of rights. They could have been subjected to a miserable life. And so what was the difference? What was the, the difference between, for a slave, their quality of life in the Roman Empire where ultimately it was their master. If they had a good and and generous and kind master, maybe their quality of life would have been all right. But if they would have had a, a harsh and brutal master, then their life would have been really difficult and really miserable. And so hopefully, seeing some of this larger context, it at least can help us balance some of this perspective, but we also need to consider the specific context into which Paul is writing. And that's that the gospel was spreading and God was saving all 
types of different people. I mean, think about what we've talked about so far in Ephesians. God is saving Jews and Gentiles, male and female, slave and free. And so now together they are forming this one new unified church of Jesus. I mean, think about how interesting of a dynamic it must have been in the early church with all this diversity and all this past tension. I mean, they had so many reasons to stay divided, but the gospel was so powerful that it united them together. And so here, what Paul is doing, you got to see the purpose for which he's writing. Here he is speaking pastorally into this specific and complex situation. One where it could have been possible that, that there were slaves in leadership positions in the church. It could have been that slaves were teaching their masters in the church. And so even so, given these circumstances, we still might wonder, well, why doesn't Paul more directly call for abolition here? Why doesn't he call it out? And so on one hand, we could point out some things pragmatically. On one hand, we could point to, well, the church at the time, they had zero political power. They had no power to overturn such a large social structure. Another thing we could point out is that if they would have just completely eradicated slavery, in just Ephesus, for example, it probably would have meant that slaves and their masters now would have been subjected to a life of poverty. But I think more than that, that's just speculation. More than that, I think ultimately the reason why Paul doesn't call for abolition here is because he has already been explicitly clear that there is something that's at the root of all types of oppression and all violence and all bigotry and every kind of evil. And that's the sin inside of us all. But he also says that the solution to every form of evil and injustice in the world is the soul-saving, mind-renewing, life-transforming grace of Jesus Christ. I mean, the good news is that through faith in Jesus, we can be freed from the bondage of sin. And so now we can have the, the ultimate and the good master, the Lord Jesus Christ, who tells us to love your neighbor as yourself. Not own your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. And even more than that, he says, love one another as I have loved you. There is nothing more anti-oppression of any form than that. And so you take the book of Philemon, for example. Philemon was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Philemon, who was a slave owner in the church of Colossae. I think they actually met in the city of Ephesus. And then somehow Paul meets uh, Philemon's runaway slave. His name was Onesimus. And so I think that he probably stole some things and then ran away. And so somehow Onesimus ends up meeting Paul. And so, of course, that meant he eventually becomes a Christian. And so Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, and he asks him to receive him back, at which point it would have been legal for Philemon to pretty much punish him however he wanted. But Paul writes, and he says, I want you to receive Onesimus back, but not as a slave. I want you to receive him as a beloved brother. He says, receive him as you would receive me. And so think about it. The gospel is so unique that it was able to advance within the social institution of slavery, but all the while it was undermining it. The gospel was abolishing slavery from the inside out. 
And so considering that the believers in Ephesus, now they knew of the true and better freedom that transcends all circumstances, Paul is helping them to see that their identity first and foremost is not as a slave or a master, but first, they're a Christian. And even if they are a slave for now, their ultimate and eternal master is the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, they can live differently even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And so to claim that Paul supported slavery would be like saying that Peter supported persecution because he wrote the letter of 1 Peter, trying to encourage those early believers to faithfully endure suffering in that way. Well, obviously, Peter wasn't supporting persecution. He was just trying to help that early church realize that if they're in Christ, they're to live like it, and they can live like it no matter what they're going through. And the same is true for us today. When we become Christians, we're not just magically removed from all of our less than ideal situations. We might still have to endure levels of injustice. We might have to submit to authority that we don't respect, and we might have to deal with a number of situations that are less than ideal. I mean, if there is a truth that all of us can relate to, it's that suffering in life is inevitable, and that oftentimes it's caused by people who are selfish and oppressive, but there's also a joy and a hope that transcends all circumstances. And so Christians are called to glorify God in all that we do, in all that we do. And why is that? Well, it's because in Christ we have been spiritually transformed and we're filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, remember back to Ephesians 5.8 that said, For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. He doesn't say you were in darkness. He says you were darkness. And so darkness wasn't just something that we did. It is, is who we were, but a transformation took place in us. And so darkness is in our past, and darkness was the old us but now we're light in the lord and we're filled with the holy spirit of god and so now we've got the the power to live and to walk in this new identity no matter how difficult the circumstance and that's what paul is calling these slaves to do in the church of ephesus and so as i mentioned earlier this isn't a there isn't a direct parallel between this and our lives but if we can consider the context and consider the principles of the instruction then we can apply this to our lives in any situation that's less than ideal, especially to the areas of our life where we have to submit to authority or we might be the authority. And that might be at school, that might be in the military, or probably what applies to most of us in the workplace. And so now as we finally get into the text, I want you to consider since all of our lives are different, we're all kind of living in a, in, a, in, a, in a different place, in a different time, all these different things. I want you to consider for you how the principles of the instruction might apply in your life. So here's the general idea of Paul's instructions here. He says, two slaves, he says, serve as if you're serving Christ. Do your work as unto Jesus As Tony Morita teaches, you can transfer masters even if you can't transfer jobs. And to the masters, he says, treat your slaves as you would treat Jesus. I mean, in every verse in this passage, Christ is mentioned. He is the primary motivation for the instructions. Look at verse 5. He says, obey as unto Christ. Verse 6, obey as bondservants of Christ. 
Verse 7, serve as to the Lord. Verse 8, you'll receive back the good you do from the Lord. In verse 9, he says that ultimately Jesus is everyone's master. In this passage, he first addresses bondservants. Again, verse 5, he says, bondservants, obey your earthly masters. And so it's not so much that they had a choice, but here this is where the influence of the gospel and the influence of the Holy Spirit comes in. How are they to obey? He says, first, with fear and trembling. He says, glorify Christ through the respectful manner with which you work. And so their fear, that's the same idea as chapter 5, verse 21, that says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That word reverence could have been that word fear. It's the same word. could have been translated differently. And so this is talking about not being afraid. It's talking about having a respect for the master's position of authority. And so think about for these slaves how easily it could have been for them to have contempt for their master, especially if they were more educated, especially if they had more skills, especially if both now them and their masters were believers now. And so that's why in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2, Paul has to say there, he says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're now brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit from their good service are believers and beloved. You know, as a kid, I, I didn't get to spend a, a whole lot of time with my father, but from time to time, I, I got to visit. And, and uh, my father was a highly ranked Marine. And so I remember this one time, got to spend a little time on the military base with him. And so for me as a kid, I never really thought much about his high rank. I noticed it pretty quickly whenever I was on the base. It seemed like everywhere we went, it was opening doors and sir this and sir that. I'd really never seen somebody who had been given so much respect. But the thing about that situation was, it wasn't like everybody there knew him personally. It wasn't like they all knew and respected him because they knew was they were really just showing the respect for the position that was over them at the time. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about don't be insubordinate just for insubordinate's sake, but obey and respect the position of authority that might be over you at the time. And then secondly, in verse 5, he says to do it, he even steps it up. He says, do it with a sincere heart. As you would Christ. Glorify Christ by caring about your work. That word sincere here, it's actually a really interesting word. It means without wax. And so here's the story behind that. At the time, whenever they would make pottery, if they were just kind of rushing on their work or weren't too careful with it, then sometimes their pottery would have cracks in it. And so to fill the cracks, they would put in a certain type of wax. And so then, usually it wasn't too noticeable unless you held it up to the light. But if somebody were to be really careful and, and take their time and do their job well, then there wouldn't be any cracks. And so then they would put a stamp on that, pot, that, that uh, pottery that said, sincere or without wax. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying, you got to work well. you got to care about your work. you got to put your heart into it. And he says the key here is this. That no matter who you're working for, or no matter the job, or no matter how difficult it might get, to do it, he says, as you would Christ. He says, 
see it as if Jesus is the one who is benefiting from your work. And if you see it like that, that changes things, doesn't it? And so think about for you, do you see your work, whatever it is, do you see your work right now as for the glory of God? Do you see your serving as for the glory of God? You know, there's this old story that's set in the Middle Ages where there is a, they're constructing this, one of those great European cathedrals. And so one of the noblemen, he goes around and he begins to ask the people who are working about their job. And so he goes to the stonemason, and the stonemason starts talking about the care with which he's, he's kind of building the walls. And, and then he goes to the, the, the glass worker, and the glass worker is talking about the, the care of, of putting all the leaded glass together. And he goes to the carpenter, the carpenter's talking about how important it is that, that the wood is holding up the structure. But then he goes to this peasant woman who is just got a broom and he's got a bucket and is cleaning up trash. And he asks her about what she's doing and she says, I'm building a cathedral for the glory of God. I mean, she gets it, right? She gets what her work is ultimately accomplishing and what it's ultimately for. And so now no longer is it like verse 6. Paul says, this is not by way of eye service as people pleasers. And so he's talking about this is doing work or, or doing work well. Only when people are watching, he says, don't be like that. Have character and have consistency. And a great illustration I read for this, or read about this this week is, uh, the writer said, I want you to imagine uh, a gym teacher. And he's got his students doing push-ups in gym class. And so that he's calling out, up, down, up, down. And, and for whatever reason, he turns his head, but he still continues to call out, up, down. What are the students going to do? I mean, as soon as he turns his head, that's when they're going to pause and they're going to take a rest. And as soon as he turns his head back, that's when they're going to keep going. He says, you don't need to work like that. You don't need to be this, this people pleaser just for eye service. And so this is kind of like what Jesus talks about in the balance in Matthew 25. When that third slave, when the master goes away and does nothing, what's the master say to him? He says, you slothful and wicked servant. And so Paul says, still in verse 6, he says, imagine you're not a bondservant of a man. Imagine you're now a bondservant of Christ. Christ who can see everything and Christ who can't be lied to. Christ who is kind of like that screen time on our phones, you know, that lets us know exactly how we've spend our time and exactly how much time we've wasted on the job. He says, see yourself as working for Christ. And when you do, that's going to change your attitude and it's going to change your effort and it's going to change that level of conscientiousness that you have because when you see yourself as working for Christ, then you know, as he says, you're doing the will of God from the heart. In verse 7, you're rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. I mean, think about it. If this life is all there is, then we would really have no reason to serve with a good will like he's calling us to, especially if we're in difficult circumstances. We should be annoyed. We should be frustrated. And we should complain. And we should, like a lot of people, just, just live for the weekend. But Christians, as Christians, we've got this promise in verse 8. He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he'll receive back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or is free. And so I, I think about whenever 
our girls first started school, there was a little bit of a transition for them. You know, it kind of went from the environment of the house where they're able to just kind of run around and play and talk as much as they want to a much more structured environment. And so there was an adjustment. And so uh, they now had to learn to kind of sit still and not talk whenever you wanted. And so, uh, so one thing that was kind of put in place was at school the, the violation system. And so for the teachers, it wasn't quite as effective as I think they hoped. And so in an attempt to try to correct some of this behavior, I instituted uh, what we now call just a Friday treats, right? I told him, look, if you can make it through the week and you got no violation, then Friday after school, we're going to go get some ice cream or something like that. Really what it was is an opportunity for me to get some quality time with the girls. Just don't tell them that, right? And so for them, though, it seemed to work. And I'm not saying that would work with every kid. I'm just saying it seemed to work. Because I think what they did was in that moment whenever they began to get tempted of, man, I really don't want to do this right now. I don't really want to, you know, not talk to my friend right now. They kind of remembered something that they were looking forward to, and it corrected some of that behavior. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying, I want you to look ahead. I want you to think about your reward. And I think for us, it's so easy for us as believers to lose sight of that. It's so easy for us to, to lose sight of what's ahead of us, or maybe we just don't believe it like we should, but you got to listen. Christians have a greater reward than money or success or even freedom from slavery. We've got this eternal reward that's guaranteed for us in heaven. And so don't you want to hear that praise that was told to the faithful servants in Matthew 25? Don't you want to hear Jesus say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and now I'm going to set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And remember in that parable, it wasn't so much about how much they accomplished as much as they were faithful to what God had given them and faithful to what they had been called to do. I mean, if we keep in mind this eternal perspective, then it's going to change the way that we serve, and it's going to change the way that we, that we work, especially in difficult circumstances, but it's also going to change the way that we treat one another, especially when we have more authority over others. In the church of Ephesus, they were the Gentiles, and they were the slaves, and so to masters, those in an elevated position, he says in verse 9, he says, Masters, do the same to them. And for them, this would have really been the shocking part. He says, Masters, I want you to apply the golden rule to those that, who, who you've never seen before as an equal. Because at least now, spiritually speaking, they are equals in Christ in the church. And so he says, Therefore, I want you to show respect to your slaves. I want you to be sincere. I want you to consider that the way that you're treating them is the way that you're treating Christ. And although that it's legal, I want you to stop your threatening. I want you to be kind. I want you to be humble. I want you to earn the respect that you're given. And remember that no matter how elevated your position on earth, one day you will stand before God and you'll have to give an account for what you've done. He says, I want you to stop that threatening. I want you to, to, to know that he who is both their master and yours is ultimately the one who is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. He says, the Jew and the Gentile are equals in the eyes of God. The poor and the rich equals in the eyes of God. The slave and the master 
are equal in the eyes of God. And so he says to business owners and managers and coaches and teachers and anyone else today in a leadership position, he says, Jesus is your master and theirs. He cares about how your employees are treated. He cares about if they're paid fairly. He cares about how they're spoken to, and he cares about their working conditions, and he cares about their quality of life, and he, compare, he cares about their, their families. And Paul says there is no partiality with him. And so therefore, lead for the glory of God. Lead in such a way that people are happy to work with you. Lead as an act of service. Lead for the benefit of others, because that's what Jesus did for us. You know, so often when it comes to work, we can be tempted in one of two ways. For some of us, we might be tempted to make an idol of work. It becomes too important. It becomes central to our identity, and so we make an idol of it. Or for some people, we might be idle in work, I-D-L-E, idle in work. And so we might just think of work as really meaningless, just kind of this, this, this necessary, meaningless thing that we got to do to make a paycheck or whatever. But God says it's neither of those things. That when I give you something to do in your work, in your serving, I want you to do it for the glory of God. And so if there is anything from today that you need to remember from this, it's this. In your serving, no matter the job, no matter the position, no matter what it is, serve for the glory of God. Serve for the glory of God and keep this in mind. That this call from God to live our lives in this respectful and sincere manner, especially toward those who don't deserve it, this is not going to be understood by our culture. But when we do, when we begin to radically serve and love and to, to give, what's going to happen is it's going to become this megaphone for the gospel. And we're going to be able to show and point to the world God's radical love and service and grace toward us when we didn't deserve it. I mean, even if you think only about your time at work, if you work 40 hours a week for 40 years, that's 80,000 hours of your life. If you add school to that, that's about 100,000 hours. And that's all time that needs to be redeemed. It's all time that we need to point others to Jesus Christ. That is time where Jesus' prayer can be answered, that his will would be done, and God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're going to wrap up our time today by receiving the Lord's Supper together. But before we do, I just wanted to share last, one last point. But at this time, I want to invite the, the band, if you guys want to come back up to the stage. And those men who are going to help pass out the Lord's Supper, if you guys want to go ahead and transition up to the front. I'll close with just this one last point and story. Remember, as Paul says, when it gets tough, and it's going to get tough, might be in difficult circumstances. Remember that it's worth it. He says, remember that it's worth it. And so I read this story this week about this old missionary couple. and They had spent 40 years serving African Americans. And so it just so happened they were going to return home to the States. And so as they were boarding a ship, it just so happened that, that President Teddy Roosevelt was also getting on the same ship. He had just spent a couple weeks in Africa doing some wild game hunting. And so as they returned home and as they were docking into the, the, the harbor of New York, um, there waiting for the president were thousands of people and dozens of reporters, and they were there to, to celebrate his return, but nobody was there to celebrate the return of these missionaries. 
And so on their way to the hotel, they, they take a taxi, and they're on their way there. And, and the, the husband just kind of leans over to his wife, and he's just uh, discouraged. And he said, it just doesn't seem right. You know, it just doesn't seem fair, right? That we've been spending 40 years of our life serving the Lord and trying to tell people about Jesus and grow the kingdom of God, but then nobody's here to welcome us back. But when the president goes and hunts the animals and is only gone for a couple weeks, it's like the whole world notices. Well, that night as they began to pray before bed, the story goes that it was like God had just kind of whispered an answer into their hearts. And so he says, do you know why you haven't yet received your reward, my children? And the answer was, it's because you're not home yet. And the same is true for us. You know, when you're living on mission, you're not going to live the same when you're at home. But this isn't our home. This is just temporary. We've got an eternal home that we have to look forward to. If you think about the Lord's Supper, it reminds us of that. Because before Jesus went to the cross, he had some time with his disciples. And he told them, I'm actually going away because I'm going to be preparing a place for you. I'm going to make it so that you can have a home with God our Father. And the way that he accomplished that was by going to the cross and taking on our sin and our shame. He paid the price for that on the cross. And he died and he was buried and then he was raised back to life again. And so through that now we have reconciliation to God and access to him and this great reminder that this world is not our home. At this time also, whenever we take the Lord's Supper, it gives us an opportunity to reflect on the condition of our relationship with the Lord. And so in a moment as these elements are distributed, I want you to consider a few questions. In light of this passage, I want you to consider, is Jesus your hope in difficult circumstances? Is he the one that you're ultimately working for? And I guess the question that we all need to ask ourselves is, is Jesus the Lord of my life? And so again, as we have the opportunity, pray through these questions and when you receive the elements, hold them for just a moment. We'll take them together. Again, is Jesus the hope in difficult circumstances for you? Are you working for him? And is he the Lord of your life in every way? Let's take a moment to pray.